When my parents got married, a friend of theirs called Stuart gave them a set of caricature drawings of Scottish poets by a pal of his. My parents were both interested in Scottish poetry. My mum was an English teacher who taught Scottish poetry to hundreds or even thousands of kids in her career. It was an excellent present. The drawings were of the seven poets, a group of grand old men of the Scottish poetry scene in the late 20th century. No one had bought them at the end of the exhibition where they were on show, so Stuart bought them as a job lot for a wedding present. Except he didn't quite get the job lot. One of the drawings had been sold at the exhibition. The Edwin Morgan drawing was missing from my parents' wall, so that people looking at them and reading each one titled Seven Poets, Number Two, Norman McCaig, or Seven Poets, Number Five, Sorley MacLean, would eventually step back and count only six poets. Who bought the Edwin Morgan drawing from the friend of a friend? Edwin Morgan bought it. My name is Ishbel McFarlane, and I'm going to spend a few podcasts exploring the life, work, and context of Edwin Morgan. If you grew up in Scotland in the last 40 years, you likely know Morgan from the classroom, from writing about the use of direct speech in in the snack bar, from copying down that the objects the characters carry in trio represent hope and happiness, from comparing and contrasting sonnets from Glasgow with something else maybe someone else. I weirdly didn't study Morgan at school. To me, he was mostly a gap on the wall, a mythical number seven, like a planet that you can prove exists by the movement of the others. And so these podcasts will be my compare and contrast. Compare and contrast Morgan's Glasgow with mine. Compare and contrast Morgan's life and mine. Compare and contrast the translator's task and mine. Compare and contrast Morgan's poems and not my poems. They are not up to having it bright and are better languishing in the candlelit memories of their mid-2000s victims. Compare and contrast Morgan's poems and... If we're honest, my baby. Morgan began the screech of newness in his second life in the 1960s, while mine is in these new twenties. Baby, motherhood, shared space and noise in a flat, a ten-minute bus journey from his quiet, booked, typewriter-tapping flat at Whittingham Court. And if I ever feel a bit awkward about this autobiographical lens I've taken, 
the way I am using a modernist experimenter, concrete poet and international pre-postmodernist to examine my own personal obsessions right now, I can remember. Who bought the Edwin Morgan drawing from the friend of a friend? Edwin Morgan bought it. Okay. Oh. What do you want to do about that? Because Sheila might need to be in touch. Well, I'll oh. certainly mute the greens. Okay. Kerosene Street. Okay. Kelbourne. Yes, yeah, sorry. Ready. Edwin Morgan's breakthrough collection was The Second Life, which came out in 1968. The poems were almost entirely written in the 1960s, with one exception, the excellently named What is Paradise Lost Really About? from 1955. OK. Thank you very much, Tom. You're welcome. First of all, I get your audio um, confirmation that you consent to this. With that one exception, all of the poems in The Second Life were written from 1962 onwards. I consent. I don't actually know what I'm consenting to. <laughs> I consent to being interviewed. It was in 1962 that Edwin Morgan met John Scott and fell in love and fell, in some ways, at the age of 42, into life. OK, cool. Um, first, I wondered if you would read out this poem, The Second Life, which is the title poem from the book. Um, so it, it was written in May 1963. OK. He says all the um, dates in the contents page. As we may have written in our O grade or our standard grade or our national exam, it is a mistake to presume the voice speaking in a poem is always the poet themselves. But here, again and again, Morgan talked about the personal reality of the second life his almost literal second life. He was born in 1920, and living his decades along with the world's decades gave them a sort of magic of chapters in his life. The 1950s were hard, dark, for him and for his city. The tail end of rationing, slums hurpling along like something from a past era, barefoot children, a quarter of the Scottish population lived in homes of two rooms or less. Not two bedrooms, two rooms. A third of those didn't have their own toilet. Scotland was just getting by. Morgan himself was in his thirties and still living with his parents, commuting in to the University of Glasgow to talk about Milton or Keats, to mark a thousand essays, sit on committees, try to write a thing, and then commuting back to Rutherglen again in the evening. The 1960s, however, started to happen. 
things happened to Glasgow. Not all good, not all bad, but things happened. Slums came down, high-rises went up, people were moved from two-room single-ends to new towns with indoor toilets and hot water, motorways, music, movement. And things happened for Morgan too. He moved into his own flat in the West End in 1962 in a brand new 60s block, all balconies and air. That same year, he met John Scott at the pictures. And the flat and the love and John and the air gave him so much poetry. A year in, in May 1963, he wrote the poem, The Second Life. Um, first, I wondered if you would read out this poem, The Second Life, which is the title poem from the book. Um, so it, it was written in May 1963. Okay. He says all the um, dates in the contents page. <coughs> the Second Life. But does every man feel like this at 40? I mean, it's like Thomas Wolfe's New York. His heady light, the stunning plunging, plunging canyons. Beauty. Pale stars winking, hazy, downtown, quitting time, and the winter moon flooding the skyscrapers. Northern, an aspiring place. Glory of the bridges, foghorns are enormous messages, a looming mastery that lays its hand on the young man's bowels until he feels, in that air, that rising spirit, all things are possible. He rises with it until he feels that he can never die. Can it be like this? And is this what it means in Glasgow now, writing as the aircraft roar over building sites in this warm west light by the daffodil banks that were never so crowded and lavish? Green May and the slow great blocks rising under yellow tower cranes, concrete and glass and steel, out of a dour rubble it was and barefoot children gone. Is it only the slow stirring, a city's renewed life, that stirs me? Could it stir me so deeply as May? But could May have stirred what I feel of desire and strength, like an arm saluting a sun? All January, all February, the skaters enjoyed Bingham's Pond, the crisp, cold evenings. They swung and flashed among car headlights. The drivers parked round the unlit pond to watch them and give them light. What laughter and pleasure rose in the rare lulls of the yards-away stream of wheels along Great Western Road. The ice broke up, but the boats came out. The painted boats are ready for pleasure. The long light needs no headlamps. Black ore cuts a glitter. It is heaven on earth. 
Is it true that we come alive not once but many times? We are drawn back to the image of the seed in darkness or the greying skin of the snake that hides a shining one. It will push that used up matter off and even the film of the eye is sloughed. That the world may be the same and we are not and so the world is not the same. The second eye is making again this place, these waters and these towers. They are rising again as the eye stands up to the sun, as the eye salutes the sun. Many things are unspoken in the life of a man. And with a place there is an unspoken love also in undercurrents, drifting waiting its time. A great place and its people are not renewed lightly. The caked layers of grime grow warm like homely coats. But yet they will be dislodged and men will still be warm. The old coats are discarded. The old ice is loosed, the old seeds are awake. Slip out of darkness, it is time. <laughs> what do you think? That's fantastic, isn't it? That's really good. I don't know very much uh, Edwin Morgan, but that's definitely the best one I've read. Well, that's the title. Yeah. For him, so yeah. I think he thought it was good too. Isn't it nice that um, that May's in there? Yeah. Could it stir me so deeply as May? In 2019, I gave birth to a daughter. She's called after my two grandmas, but we call her May for short. She was born in May, and she is like May, and she is May. The interview that you're hearing is between me and my husband, Tommy, May's dad. We talk all the time about May, about what our lives are now that we have her, about how to work and parent, about how I can be creative and alive and still sleep with May beside me every night, still feed her from my body. We talk about how great she is, how hard it is, how new it is, how old it is. But I wanted to talk to him about it all on tape as well. Isn't it nice that, um, that May's in there? Yeah. Could it stir me so deeply as May? I studied Scottish ethnology as a pre-honour student at university. And the first project I had, I chose to do a study on differences in attitudes to education in the interwar years, comparing rural and urban populations. Why did 19-year-old Ishbel choose that project on pedagogical history? So I could legitimately use the university mini-disc recorder to interview my grandparents. Do you think that we have more than one beginning of life, like it says in the poem? 
Um, I mean, in a sense, right? It depends how you want to think about it. Like, I still carry with me all my memories. And that's part of who I am. And some things about me I can't really change by now, I think. They're, they're sort of set. But on the other hand, you know, every moment is a new chance to act, isn't it? Do you think that um, having me was a second, was a, was a break point for you? Yeah. Yeah, huge change in my life, definitely. Um, I mean, everything I was doing before had to stop. Um, and I had this new person to love and I loved her immediately. And she loved me almost immediately, I think, as well. Um, so that became a real center, a very sudden thing um, that appeared. Tommy says sudden, and of course it was. It was sudden, despite a long period of considering whether we'd try to have children. A period, quite literally, of waiting to see if we would have children. A period of knowing there's at least one of them in there, how are we going to get it out? And then 24 hours of getting it out, which we did, for reasons of our own, in Larbert. For Morgan, the suddenness of his life change was just as slow. Though the war and immediately after it were not great times for his production of writing, he wasn't dead to creativity or inspiration. He adapted a Cicero aphorism to say, Inter arma musae tacent. In time of conflict, the muses are silent. But, he added, they are not sleeping. In love too, he had not been only sleeping. As illegal as it was, as utterly secret as it needed to be, there had been love, there had been sex, there had been some dark and bad experiences and some good and light experiences. But there hadn't been this unification in one person that he found in John Scott, a Lanarkshire man he met at the pictures, who gave him the words. Have there been a, do you feel like there's other times in your life that have been like that or was that a sort of unique experience? Um, I think, I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to necessarily put your finger on a single moment, but there have been times on, in my life when I've changed quite quickly. And one of them was when you and I were starting to get together and I was thinking about God, which I'd sort of shelved since I was 15 and not really thought about. I just like decided I was an atheist and that was that. Mm. Um, so that was a, a, I mean, that was really a birth, like absolutely a birth for me, like that reawakening of there's, there's uh, a lot I realized that I can get from religion without believing in uh, a supernatural deity. Um, so that was definitely a rebirth. Uh, 
what else I think love is a good one though you know the first time you're in love you're really excited and you're listening to these pop songs and suddenly they mean something so that was definitely something that happened to me a good few times as a teenager or in my early 20s that does feel like rebirth oh I know a good one as well the moment when you um, feel like you're properly recovered from having been ill you know I can remember sometimes being in the shower back in Garnet Hill and thinking you know oh ready to embrace life let's go out there and do it I'm a new man <laughs> yeah absolutely I think that um, the, the the general consensus on the second life for Edwin Morgan is partly love oh yeah so he's um, in a long term relationship yeah yeah it seems like love and um, renovating slums <laughs> which is an alternative title for the poetry book <laughs> I think often about the way Morgan describes the caked layers of grime being cosy like homely coats I think about the coziness of my set ways before May the pain of throwing the dead skin of the me who I used to be the me who could write alone for hours who could read and concentrate, who could sit in cafes and think and feel and be a contained human of her own. But as I read it, I realised. I read and I realised. I hadn't thought about it until now, but I realised. When May and I laboured in the flat and in the hospital and in the bed and in the pool and in the room, she was sloughing me. They tested and tested her heart rate to see if she was in distress, but it never wavered. I bellowed and pulled and clutched hands and Tommy thought neither of us would live, but her heart rate never wavered. She was calm as floating to be pushing that used matter off. Even the film of the eye is sloughed. Um, I felt that when I read it. It talks about love and, and you're saying there about pop songs. And I definitely had that with me. You know, yeah. when we were in, the, don't you remember when we were in the taxi going back to hospital when she was like three days old. Yeah. First set of jaundice tests that then... We came home and then a few days later we had to go back in again. Yeah. And um, there was, I was like hovering over the back seat. Yeah. Because I couldn't sit down yet because my body was completely <clears throat> broken. Um, and there, I can't, and, and at the time I thought, I will remember this for the rest of my life. I will always remember yeah. this song. And I have no idea what the song was. <laughs> <laughs> I did. You were just so emotional. I just both of us were crying. Yeah. I could see you crying in the front as well. Yeah. And the taxi driver being like, Oh, Celine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like three days. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I know there is something, you know, when you come into contact with someone who's that young, that there's there's a kind of enchantment there, isn't there? That's like you've you've walked into a holy place. It was holy. That is what it was. To see the old ice loosed, to see the seed awake, 
it is holy. And there was a holiness for Morgan too in this explosion of love. He wrote once about writing a poem and then immediately reading a Gerald Manley Hopkins journal with many connections to what he'd just written. He said, Such coincidences or clusters of events seem relatively common, and yet they never fail to have a striking effect on the mind. There is something in Whittingham Court, where Morgan had his flat, that was like a holy place for him. A place to make connections, to allow the mind to be. A place where he could, for the first time, write alone without calls on his attention, lie in bed with his lover, eat strawberries on the balcony, come alive, not once, but many times. It is to Whittingham Court we'll go next time. It is heaven on earth. Thank you.